Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Today my guest is Rex Salisbury. Rex is a founder and general partner at Cambrian, a VC fund integrated with Cambrian Community. Cambrian is one of the largest communities in fintech with over 15,000 subscribers, 4,000 meetup attendees and 1,100 plus member Slack community exclusively for founders. He was previously a partner at Andreessen Horowitz where he was one of the first hires on the firm's fintech team. Now let's talk to him. Hi Rex, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here, Rule. Yeah, I'd love to know where you grew up and what were your interests growing up. Yeah, so I grew up on a farm in Maryland. I'm actually one of five kids, and so I spent a lot of time doing work outside as a kid and probably my first introduction to investing was the complete opposite of venture investing. I was actually working on renovating very dilapidated homes and office properties. So You know, if if venture is growth investing, this was very much kind of deep value investing and a lot of sweat yeah. equities. But so so grew up in Maryland and then I've been out in the Bay Area now for about a decade, which has been an awesome awesome transition because this is such a great and rich tech ecosystem. Yeah. You did uh, this house renovation and selling stuff growing up? Yeah, so my family, my father was a title attorney and so he did a lot okay. of residential real estate closings and then We were out in Frederick, Maryland, so we'd also buy small office properties, fix those up and then rent them out long term. So I spent a lot of time scraping paint, doing carpentry, a lot of times with a sledgehammer just ripping out old walls, old fixtures, that sort of stuff because that's very unskilled labor and then would work with some of our close close contacts who are much more skilled layer for the the plumbing, the electricity, the carpentry, etc. Okay. Okay. Yeah, how did you end up in fintech and eventually in venture? Yeah, so I the way I affected my transition into first the tech ecosystem before eventually ending up in venture was like any good transition I think it started out with quitting my old career. So I I started off originally as an investment banker, learned a lot, totally hated it, had no aspiration to be a, you know, career long banker i think a lot of people who start off in investment banking share a similar sentiment not everyone though is willing to just quit their job and try and do something very different so that's what i did i was actually when i was on a trading desk at bank of america merrill lynch i was on the side teaching myself to code nights and weekends and then eventually ended up just quitting my job driving cross country moving to san francisco and then working on Cindia which is a direct consumer mortgage company I was working as a back end engineer under one of the former co-founders of SoFi Andy Kara and working on a fully automated mortgage pre-approval so but the the big thing that I did to do that was like you know put in the work <laughs> learned learned to code and then took a risk quit my job moved cross country <laughs> yeah yeah so I, i read a quote from Andy Kara which says you know the case was simple simply that Rex is smart understands both finance and tech has a keen analytical mind and is willing to ask the hard questions in good faith so willing to ask the hard questions in good faith is at least for me a good sign of a good founder how come you didn't build uh, a startup well well first on who andy is so andy's the cto of the first fintech company oh. i worked at sindio so yeah. i worked under him no andy love andy is also co-founder of sofi and very appreciative that he gave me an opportunity to do my first real work within the fintech ecosystem in terms of why not being a founder so first in a way i am i'm i'm a solo gp i started my own venture firm i am now running and doing that however as you hint at 
running a venture firm is very different from starting an operating company. And yeah. for me, what it came down to was realizing that probably what I am really good at, or maybe what my superpower is, is building and maintaining networks. And that's valuable for founders as well, but it's incredibly valuable in the world of venture, especially at the pre-seed and seed. And so there's a piece written by um, a group recently, they're like, Rex is a, a, a super connector, right? And so that's a lot of what I do. And how I ended up doing that was a little bit by accident. So in call it 2014, 2015, when I was working with Andy at Cindio, I was building some interesting stuff in fintech. And I was like, hey, I want to talk to other people who are in San Francisco building interesting things in financial services. If you look at the trend line for the term fintech on Google Trends, you will see that it's really not a thing until around 2014 when it becomes a little bit more popularized. And then that term starts to take off. And that's right when I decided to start Cambrian, the community. So I now today run Cambrian, the fund, but it started originally as a community for founders and builders in fintech about 10 years ago when I was working as a software engineer. And so the reason I did, there was no like grand plan at the time. It was just, I'm in San Francisco. I like talking to interesting people. I want to hear about the other interesting things people are building. I didn't feel that anyone else was really creating a space to convene and have these kinds of conversations. And so I did that. And our typical event would look like three presenters talking about something they built or launched in the last you know, six to 12 months. That might be a brand new company talking about something that they built. That might be an at-scale fintech company talking about a big new product launch. So our very first event, for example, was my team at Cindio talking about a fully automated mortgage pre-approval that we had built. It was the Plaid team yeah. demoing their Plaid API. And then it was Mitch demoing Penny, which was a chat app, personal financial management tool built on top of the Plaid API that then Credit Karma subsequently acquired. So that was kind of the core audience was people who were just building really interesting things. And from there, the community grew over time. And so I was in my day job, you know, doing software engineering on my, you know, nights and weekends building this community. And as the community got bigger, I started running events in San Francisco and in New York doing biannual summits, quarterly job fairs, biannual co-founder matching, and now the Slack community that has close to 2000 fintech founders in it. And, you know, as I looked around, I was like, look, if this is what I'm doing in my free time, by default, it's basically building and marshalling all these networks within fintech. Like, maybe that says that's something I should, should do professionally. And it, and it started to pull yeah. me into investing and advising. And that's how I ended up in 2019, deciding to, again, quit my job then as a software engineer, go full-time on Cambrian, the community, and launch Cambrian, the fund. But... What ended up happening was the Andreessen Horowitz team, who I'd gotten to know over the years through running Cambrian the community, reached out and was like, hey, we're going to build a fintech practice. We would love for you to be part of that journey. And they're a great firm, have a great reputation in fintech. And I was like, look, if the thing I want to do in the future is run my own venture firm and do fintech investing, this is if nothing else, a great way to prepare for that and potentially something to do with them for a long, long period of time. So I joined there in 2019. When I joined, it was basically three of us doing fintech investing. Today, they have a team of about 10 after two and a half years. Uh, it was either time to stay for a really long time or time to go back out and do what I was originally planning to do. And I decided to go back to my roots, which was leveraging the networks and relationships I built now over about a decade of you know working in the fintech ecosystem in the Bay Area to launch my own fund. And that's what I'm doing now. So Cambrian, 
The fund is just north of a $20 million fund focused on pre-seed and seed investing in fintech companies with US go-to-markets. I do a lot of B2B. I would love to do more consumer as well. But the easiest way to think about how I spend my time is, you know, 90% US B2B fintech at the pre-seed and seed. And that's been a great journey because a lot of the community apparatus that I've built over the past decade is incredibly helpful in terms of, yes, like sourcing deals, getting to know founders, knowing founders who have been on two, three tours of duty across the FinTech ecosystem, but also, and crucially, supporting those founders, helping them find early employees, helping them find early customers, helping them find early infrastructure partners, which banking as a service provider should I use, which bank partners should I use directly, even if they technically don't have a BAS program, Sometimes there are unique banks because of who you're working with that make a ton of sense. Who are potential channel partners I can work with? All of these things can be a little bit opaque as people are setting out when they're very early on, even if they're well-networked. I spend my whole day talking to lots of different people, different stakeholders in the ecosystem. So early on in a company's journey, I try and leverage that network to do all of those things, to turn over stones and kind of reveal certain opportunities that maybe would have, you know, I'm sure the founders I back, they're very smart. They're incredibly well networked. They, they know their spaces incredibly well, but it probably would have taken them another three, six, maybe 12 months to realize that there are some of these potential opportunities out there. And so that's my goal is basically to leverage the networks I've built over a decade to help accelerate the work that my companies do. And I think what, one thing that's awesome about fintech is it's naturally an incredibly networked space. If you're building a yeah. company you probably need a payment processor. You need like a banking partner. You need regulatory counsel. You need channel partners who have, you know, one set of products, but your product is complementary to those to that product. And so fintech, I think more so than say consumer software, maybe, where maybe it's just like a standalone social app or enterprise, where a similar sort of thing. Fintech is naturally networked in a way that I think is unique to this ecosystem, which means a network-driven approach to investing and to a building can create a lot of value. So you had some original question, which was, I think, why not <laughs> build, a, build a company and instead start, uh, start doing venture? I think, I think there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to do venture. And they like, don't necessarily know what it means or, or why they want to do it. And I actually think building a company is like a much more interesting thing for most people. I, I ended up in venture accidentally. It was something like I found myself doing and then was like, well, I should probably like do this <laughs> if I'm already spending a lot of time doing it. So that's the story. I basically accidentally ended up in venture land. Uh, was there a moment when you realized that you're good at this building network and, and connecting people? Yeah. So I th careers, I think often are, you know, there are a lot of paths that are not taken and stories can like make a lot of sense when you like look at them ex post and say, oh, here are like the natural stepping stones. But there are a lot yeah. of like paths that I, I didn't take. So actually one of the big ones that I didn't take was in maybe 2017, 2018, I'd been building Cambrian the community for a few years. I had at also been doing software engineering now professionally for several years. And I was trying to decide, like, okay, what do I want to do next in my career? And I was actually, again, nights and weekends pursuing a master's in artificial intelligence through an online program. And I was doing that while also nights and weekends building Cambrian the community. And I realized that like, I was probably better at the, the network stuff. And crucially, and this is the most important thing, I was getting more energy and found myself drawn to doing that work more than I did to doing the master's uh, in AI. And so I was like, look, if, I, if, 
if one of these things feels like fun and the other one feels like a struggle, I should probably focus on the one that I feel more naturally drawn to. And so that was one of the turning points in terms of understanding how I wanted to spend my time and where I wanted to invest my, my career energy was basically deciding not yeah. to go even deeper on the engineering side of things. But there have been other paths too. Like, you know, I had to decide to quit my, my job doing investment banking. I, you know, I considered starting things at various points in my career, but then also decided that that wasn't the right fit for, for some of the same reasons we just talked about around being good at networks. And then, and if I tell the story ex post and I look back at how I've tended to operate, I've kind of always operated as someone who builds and maintains a lot of networks and communities. For example, I, I run our alumni association for my alma mater, Davidson College. I do a bunch of other work with like, or yeah, at points I've been very, very involved with helping build connectivity between the student base and the Bay Area out here. So this is something that I've done in a variety of capacities and recognizing that it's like, okay, I can probably continue to do this as if this is what I do naturally. Yeah. And when it comes to building the community, right? So initially you said that, you know, it was a bunch of folks, fintech founders and other folks in the community uh, in fintech coming together to learn from each other, like on building products and stuff. So has that evolved as you grow the community as to like what people who join the community gets out of being part of the community? Yeah, so the, I think every community evolves. And so Cambrian has been no different. It started off as these monthly events in downtown San Francisco and then monthly events in downtown San Francisco and in New York. Now I haven't done an event like that for about two or three years, right? COVID in 2020 killed all the in-person stuff. And so now what I mostly do is convene folks digitally. So I have the Slack community of about 2,000 fintech founders. And then I also do content and interviews. So a component of what we used to do at the in-person events was have people talk about things they were building. So now I still do that, <laughs> but I do that in yeah. a purely digital context and purely in a kind of you know content lens. Um, and so I have a a podcast yeah. and a YouTube channel, and I'm active on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And so I still try and disseminate some of that knowledge, but more as content as opposed to like in-person events being the, the thing. And I do much smaller scale events. So I often bring together folks in the investor community for smaller, more focused happy hours or dinners. I also do the same thing for the founder community. I bring together on roughly a quarterly basis all the founders in and around Cambrian, the fund. So we now have 20 portfolio companies. We have a whole bunch of great founders, for example, in the Bay Area and in New York. And so when I'm in those locations, I like to try and bring folks together. And then we've also got 20 plus founders who are all LPs in the fund from places like SoFi, Plaid, Blend, et cetera. And so also bring those together to connect with you know the next generation of fintech entrepreneurs. Although in some cases, the, the founders I've backed are themselves repeat founders. So they, they were the the previous and the next generation of, of fintech founders. So I still do a lot of the same kind of community work, but it's taken a very different shape over time. And I will always continue to do that kind of community and network work, but it will continue to evolve and shift. Yeah. And I guess uh, simple tools like the co-founder matching and the jobs board are also part of that evolution where you can, you can do more scalable solutions, right? Yeah. And one thing I do, which you mentioned, co-founder matching twice a year. I basically yeah. do a call out to community. If you're looking for a co-founder, here's you know a process you can run through and I'll help you match to. We usually have about 250 folks participate. 
And so that's one thing that I continue to run and, you know, creates as someone who convenes a lot of people and has like good ability to disseminate information. It's not a whole lot of lift for me, but it creates a lot of value for individuals. You know, probably each time results in 10 plus co-founders match. I, I have no way of really tracking, so I don't know what the exact number is. So, um, but that's like a pretty, I, something I'm very excited about, even though I don't necessarily see any like direct return to myself, like of those 10 plus companies who are formed each time, like I don't necessarily even know who they are. But it's like, look, if this is something I can do, I create value for the ecosystem. I'm sure it'll all, all come back to, to me and also just other folks I've worked with uh, over time. Yeah. I mean, I, so I've also had this realization that, you know, the flywheel that you need to create is, uh, you know, adding value, which will create access for you over time, for sure. Yep, totally. So uh, you, you knew the founders of Beal very early right when when they just came out of the yc program so you know the first time you met them uh, did, did you think that they they would go on to become the fastest company to reach uh, 100 million arr and you know so uh, the short answer is, the is no <laughs> you know it's very hard yeah. even as a venture investor whose job is to some extent to try and predict the future it's very hard to predict individual outcomes in terms of you know who will be the the fastest growing companies that you back. And for listeners who aren't familiar, Deal is an all-in-one HR platform for a global team. So easiest way to think about them is a version of international payroll. They allow you to hire and pay anyone around the world. Although you might not be hiring, it might be contracting with them. They have a variety of different kind of legal structures behind it. And today they're, you know, have paid out over $5 billion to over 250,000 individuals around the world. And they were last valued at $12 billion a little over a year ago. So that's that's deal for folks who aren't familiar. And then when I was at Andreessen Horowitz, we led their Series A late 2019, early 2020. And so they've been a phenomenal outcome. They've been one of the fastest growing portfolio companies in A16Z's history, one of the fastest growing SaaS companies or software companies generally. And I originally met uh, Shuo actually through the community work, Shuo being the co-founder and CTO of Deal through Cambrian when I was running a still at that point in time in-person events. And she presented at one of our events in downtown San Francisco. And we ended up leading the Series A a little bit later. So uh, if you had told me, you know, back when I originally met Shuo when she was presenting that, you know, oh, she's going to be building the company that's growing faster than any other company. I'd be like, I, I didn't know that at the time. But you could see that she had an incredibly compelling idea, had worked incredibly hard and developed already even early on. And they basically launched in early 2019 and they saw a lot of traction out of the out of the gate. They were in YC and their first customers were their YC batchmates. And they just had tremendous pull from a lot of their batchmates who basically wanted to hire global talent, but it was very complicated to do so, especially to pay those individuals, especially want to do so in a compliant way. And so it was clear early on that they had strong product pull, maybe even product market fit from very early. They're experiencing fast growth and they had a great team. But even with all those things, like as an investor, it's very hard to, to predict the future. So um, yeah, it, it's not surprising, but it's not necessarily something I would have been able to tell you with a high degree of confidence at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, right? I mean, you can have like a early traction, but then to take it to 100 million ARR and that to the, within a short period of time, yes, COVID helped. So is there anything about the team that really stood out other than the fact that, you know, they have taken great product feedback very early on and things like that? Anything about those two founders that stood out for you? Yeah, I think one thing that I always think about when I think about Deal is they have an internal, um, you know, 
company cultural idea, which is deal speed, which is just that they build and ship very, very quickly. And so if you have strong product pull, you also need to be execute incredibly quickly, right? If you think about building an international payroll solution, it kind of blows my mind to think about how, you know, it's so hard to launch a fintech product in one geography, given all the regulatory complexity. And so the idea of having to build and scale globally and, you know, help establish legal entities. And I think they're in 150 plus countries around the world. Like you need a degree of speed <laughs> and executional excellence that just is, you know, is not something that necessarily every, every single type of founding team can kind of instill across their organization. And they seem to have done a very good job of being able to do that. And that was clear very early on. And so I think deal speed is definitely one of the things that I think about in terms of why they've been able to, to be successful. And that's not to say, you know, even if you have, you know, great execution, fast growth also creates a lot of operational headaches, but you basically build the systems and continually improve them over time. So scaling is an issue at, at any, any company, uh, especially, and maybe even more so when you're, you're growing incredibly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I just talked about uh, regulatory complexity. So and I've heard you speak about the product council uh, in fintech specifically. Could you please expand on like why product council is so important? So if you want to be reductionist about what a fintech company is, usually the core component of the software you're building is some kind of regulatory rules engine. So take Deal, for example. Yeah. A lot of the software that they're building is a regulatory rules engine to understand the legal and compliance requirements in 150 plus countries around the world and abstract that away from the end user. So if you're a Bay Area-based company that wants to hire a contractor in Poland and another one in Argentina, you don't need to know how the Argentine or you know the Polish courts are like, do they have states or provinces? Is this like a federal versus a, you know, a more local thing? How do I actually move the money? All of that gets transact away. Do you need an MSB versus an, an ISB? Do you need like a banking charter? Do you need to have like a P over? Like there's a lot of complexity there in understanding and being the regulatory yeah. rules engine is at the core of any fintech company in terms of the software they're building. So your question is, why does product counsel matter? And so what is product counsel? Product counsel is someone who is on the legal team at a fintech company whose goal is to help translate legalese into product and software. So the reason this matters so much is, well, for a long time, these individuals were unicorn. It'd be, it'd be very hard to find someone who is a lawyer and understands how to communicate with product managers and engineers and think in software terms to translate legalese into code. And so now that we're, you know, 10 years into, you know, 10 plus years into the growth of the fintech ecosystem, we actually have a lot more individuals who have done this, who have been product counsel at fintech companies at scale. For example, <laughs> Deal has a whole legal team. That whole legal team has now spent, you know, four plus years understanding the global complexities of payroll and working very closely with the engineering team to make sure that their software systems reflect that complexity. But if you're building any other kind of software, you need to understand those same types of things and you need the right individuals who can translate between those two worlds. 
So when I think about my time, I used to work at Checker as a software engineer. Checker is governed under the FCRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the same act that was passed in the 1970s that governs how credit scores and credit scoring and credit extended in the US. So it's like a very regulatorily important um, incision when you're doing a background check for hiring for business. And one of the most important things for me as a software engineer to have when I was going out and writing code was to be able to reach out to someone who was on the legal team, who was product counsel to understand, okay, if I make these changes in the code, is that okay? What downstream implications does that have? And so that's why having really good product counsel matters because at the end of the day, like you're building a regulatory rules engine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that, that's probably one of the reasons why you make the argument also that everything in fintech is just middleware. Well, I would, I would say two things. I think one that there, um, there is a lot of stuff. I mean, I, if you're gonna be reductions, I guess you can say like everything is middleware. Like if you're not <laughs> standing between two different things, like what what are you doing? Um, but in fintech, there is definitely a lot of different layers that you can build on top of, and I think there is always going to be a big question of whether you buy, build, or partner, and it can be non-obvious from the start which of those options is going to be the best, and it takes kind of sophisticated entrepreneurs to understand given how hard it can be to build internally some of these things, but then also how much control you lose if you rely on a third party, that's another really important set of decisions every founder has to make is the extent to which I want to rely on a third party or have this be part of my core competency. I do think we're incredibly lucky that right now, if you want to use a third party to do some incredibly important part of what you're building, there are really great tools to do that. And that's great because yeah. you only you only want to do the things you have to do to be, bring unique value to the market. You don't want to have to build everything. And 10 years ago, if you're going to try and build a neobank, you have no idea like what banks are available to do partnerships with because literally no one has done one. And so it takes you three years to find yeah. a banking partner. And then when you negotiate the first agreement, it is the first agreement someone has ever negotiated to set up a bank partnership. And so it's like, what should that agreement look like? Well, I don't know. So it takes forever. If you fast forward today, entrepreneurs actually have the opposite problem, which there are so many different uh, potential partners, right? If you want a banking as a service provider, well, they're depending on how you count it between yeah. five and 20 platforms. If you want a partner bank, so you don't want to use, you know, middleware of a bass layer and you want to partner directly with someone, you know, they're depending again on how you count it, 20 to 40 banks who would be willing to do that. And so now, and this is where I try and provide value with the companies I invest in, is helping them not necessarily decide which exact partners they should be using, but helping make sure that they have the right names on the menu as early as possible and have the right level of connectivity to make an informed decisions about which partner they choose. And then crucially, what I'll often also do, like, let's say you're looking for a bank partner, because that's, you know, a pretty common one. It's like, okay, based on what you're doing, these are probably the four or five, you know, banks, the four or five batch platforms that make the most sense. Let me also connect you to another entrepreneur who has built on one of those banks or batch platforms in the last six to 12 months, who is doing something somewhat similar to you. Because if you just go to a fintech infrastructure provider's website and try and decide who's better, or just talk to a salesperson, it's very hard. 
and opaque from the outside, even for yeah. specialists who are very deep on the ecosystem to understand exactly how they're different. If instead of talking to a salesperson or reading the website, you go to another founder who is actually built on top of that platform and is running production volume through them and has a product that's somewhat similar to yours, that is an incredibly productive conversation in terms of understanding how you can actually leverage that platform. And so that's one of the big things that um, is great about fintech right now. You have all these options, but also hard. If you have a lot of options, how do you make choices? And so I try and help people construct menus and then connect with the right people to make intelligent choices. And then as a result of that, I learn as well, you know, what's going on in the ecosystem and that informs some other thinking and also can inform opportunities for other investment, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the vertical SaaS, I've seen you uh, talk about it as a trend that would explode in 2023. So one example would be something like a Shopify where earlier it had a payment gateway. Now it can embed financing, so embedded finance, which can provide loan services and things like that. This is the this is what you mean by vertical SaaS, right? Yeah. So let's talk about vertical SaaS. So first, let's define it. Then I'll talk about why I think it's very interesting. And then three, I want to talk about the yeah. other side of the coin of vertical SaaS, which is embedded fintech, because I think those things go together. So we'll we'll do all of that. But let's first just start by defining vertical SaaS. So vertical SaaS is an operating system that a business uses to run its business. If you're an e-commerce company. Your vertical SaaS platform is yeah. Shopify. If you are a restaurant, your vertical SaaS platform is Toast, right? It lets you manage the orders. It's your point of sale. It has your like payroll to some extent built in. But there are a lot of other kinds of vertical SaaS platforms for manufacturing companies, for logistic companies, for lumber companies, for golf courses. All of these have distinct workflows, distinct sets of tasks that need to be done. But the vertical SaaS platform is the one where operators are spending a ton of their time to run the daily needs of their business. That is a huge category. Uh, the canonical examples of vertical SaaS companies that are later stage are MindBody and Toast. But there are now, I have seen in the last year, over 100 plus new vertical SaaS companies that have gotten started across all these different categories. So a big question would be, like, why now for vertical SaaS? And the answer there is the cost to start any software company has gone down because of cloud computing and cloud infrastructure, because there's better talent out there. But that's just the, the build component of it. You also need the business model component of it. And this is where we start talking about financial services. The business model for vertical SaaS used to be a subscription fee. So let's say that I am building software for your restaurant to run it. Well, if I don't process payments... What I'm going to do is instead, I'm just going to charge you like a few hundred dollars a month. That's not that much revenue per restaurant. Let's say a restaurant is doing a million dollars in top line revenue, which is about the average for what a coffee shop like Starbucks usually do. They usually do, I think, more like a million and a half. So if I'm charging like a few thousand dollars, that's yeah. not that much revenue. I don't have that much revenue to invest in building the software and the sales motion, all of that. If instead I start to embed financial services, a very easy and obvious example being something like payments and I start doing the payment processing, and you're doing a million and a half top line in sales, and I'm now taking 3%. Now, sure, some of that is going out the door to my payment processor. All of a sudden, instead of earning $3,000 for that coffee shop who's live, and really, you're serving a chain of coffee shops, so maybe it's 10, 20, you know, whatever. Now, I can actually be earning you know, 50, 60,000. I can earn 10 times as much money by layering in payment processing. And so, vertical SaaS has exploded as a category because building software has gotten easier. 
And now there's a new way to monetize, which is by embedding financial services. Payment processing is the easiest example, but there are a lot of other examples for what this looks like, which brings us to the flip side of the coin, which is yeah. embedded fintech. If you're building a vertical SaaS platform, you are not also a payment processing company. You are not going to build your own payment processor from the ground up. You're going to partner with someone. That someone could be Stripe. That could be a new player. But there are a lot of things besides just doing payment acceptance that you can use to monetize through financial services. So let's take a restaurant example again. Let's say that you are doing... Um, so now you've got the, the payment processing... Well, you are also ordering a whole bunch of supplies through your platform, right? You have all of the, the inputs to your ingredients, all of the, the equipment you're purchasing. There's an opportunity, and a lot of that will be on kind of wholesale terms. There might be 30, 60, uh, net 90 contracts. You can do embedded lending between the restaurant and their wholesale provider. So that would be an opportunity for embedded B2B lending. I'm an investor in a company called OFI that partners with a lot of vertical SaaS platforms to do that sort of thing, embedded lending for the B2B money movement component of what a business is doing. There's also an opportunity to do embedded payroll. Let's say that you're a restaurant, you need to pay your employees, your employees are getting tips, those tips are being processed through the point of sale. Well, probably you have to then go to like another system. And in that other system, you have to like take information from your vertical SaaS platform and translate it over. And that's like a total pain in the butt. And you're, you're a restaurant operator. You like don't want to be a payroll data monkey. If instead that's embedded directly into your system, all of that can be automated. The problem is your vertical SaaS for restaurants. You do not want to build like a payroll engine. Like that's a lot of work. And so it makes sense for a third party to do that. I'm an investor in another company, Salsa which does embedded payroll that partners with a lot of vertical SaaS platforms. And then another example, like let's say you're, again, a restaurant and you want to have like an embedded loyalty wallet, things like the Starbucks app as a service so that you can do order ahead, you can get loyalty, you know, buy nine coffees, get the 10th one free. You can load your wallet so that especially for low value transactions, you don't have to pay these really high credit card transaction fees because you can load it actually from a bank account. Well, it's hard to build a closed-loop payment system, and that's distinct from payment processing, by the way. So you can partner with another company. This is another one I'm investing in called Anza. Anza is an embeddable closed-loop payment system for loyalty and rewards, and they power things like coffee shops, restaurants, but other categories as well, even in B2B, gaming, leisure, etc. So vertical SaaS is this huge category because there's an opportunity to redefine how every single business operates by loading all their workflows into a single unified platform. And now there's a new business model, which is allowing them to monetize through various kinds of financial services. We talked through payment processing, B2B lending, uh, embedded consumer wallets, and payroll. But there's also stuff like insurance. And there's a whole other category depending on exactly what it looks like. So that's why like vertical SaaS in its own right, those companies are so interesting. But why this whole embedded fintech movement, which I actually almost prefer the term meta vertical SaaS, because it's like the companies powering the vertical SaaS companies, like that's another incredibly exciting category. So hopefully that's a good answer of like, what is vertical SaaS? <laughs> and what does <is laughs> embedded fintech mean as it relates yeah. to vertical SaaS? Yeah, a couple of things, um, like in terms of dynamics, right, when it comes to like a vertical SaaS product, especially if they are the leader, it has a winner takes all kind of dynamics, right? Especially if you look at maybe Shopify or something like that. So what, one problem with vertical SaaS is certain vertical SaaS markets can be small, 
right? And so they actually maybe need to be a winner take most in order for the market size to be big enough to drive multi-billion dollar outcomes. Other categories, so like e-commerce, for example, is a very large category. And the category itself is large enough to support multiple winners in a variety of different capacities. And so while Shopify is out there and they're, you know, they've done incredibly well and grown incredibly well, there are a lot of other people chipping away at different parts of the e-commerce stack to build either vertical SaaS or kind of marketplace-based opportunities that are still very interesting. So I think sometimes you definitely do need a winner take most in part because if you start drilling down into like, you know, let's say golf course vertical SaaS, it's like, well, how many golf courses are there? How much can you monetize? Maybe that's not a good example because maybe if you do the math, you're like, oh, actually that is a big category. But then you're like, oh, what about putt-putts? Like maybe putt-putts should have like their own distinct operating system. Like how big is that actually? So then you need market a winner takes most just because there aren't necessarily that many of those kinds of companies. But in the really big categories like e-commerce, you can have multiple players. Outside of the category question, there's also a question of the extent to which you can have some sort of network effect for the business that you're building. That means you end up with a winner takes most dynamic. So if you think about a lot of business categories, they often are highly networked. So I'm an investor in a company called GovForce. They do vertical software for government contractors. Government contracting is an incredibly networked space because you have a prime contractor who has a bunch of subcontractors. The subcontractor on one project might be a prime on another project. What GovForce does is they help you manage your relationships with all of your subcontractors and your primes, et cetera. So that creates a natural network effect as you build out that graph of relationships. And so that can be a very interesting and compelling from an investment standpoint when you see a large vertical SaaS category that has a naturally networked aspect to it, which means if the company ends up executing well, they can be a winner take most of the market because once network effects get started, they can be very, very hard to stop or disrupt by a, by a new entrant. Yeah. And also for businesses that already has a great, great network effect, uh, let's say a large user base like Apple, uh, you know, they can just <laughs> start financial services because they already have the distribution in place, right? There's also that dynamic. Yeah, and there is always the question of whether incumbents acquire innovation before startups get distribution. In financial services, a lot of at-scale players have struggled historically to actually execute on getting that innovation and using their own distribution channels for it effectively. So, for example, Apple did a card with Goldman They've recently had huge charge-offs associated with that card. They did launch a savings account recently. They've seen billions of net inflow. Seems to be going very well right now, but we'll see where it is in another year. Because if you remember, Google launched Googleplex, which was a saving account called about two years ago. Maybe it's been three now. That went nowhere. Financial services is highly regulated. Regulators don't like it when monopoly-sized companies start to dabble around in other like parts of the ecosystem. Also, the banks really don't like it, and they tend to fight back and push back in a variety of ways. And so there is the opportunity for large at-scale tech incumbents to own big parts of the financial services ecosystem. But there are also a lot of forces that push against that 
Because operating a financial services company is very different from operating a search company or a hardware company. And then the big banks too, like there is an opportunity for them to acquire, you know, some of this innovation. I think AI will be a very interesting example of, or, you know, trend to watch and see the big banks are able to use AI to automate a lot of the internal workflows. Banks have really high operational costs that are usually armies of analysts doing things in customer support and compliance and balance sheet management. It seems like the AI tooling has gotten better to the extent where it could start to take over a lot of those um, internal operations that drive operational expense and therefore are a drag on profitability. And if so, that could be a big boon to the incumbents. But historically, banks have been incredibly slow to adopt any sort of new technology. For example, JP Morgan in 2019, which 2019, by the way, is, you know, call it 13 years after 2005 when AWS was announced, the first, you know, big cloud compute platform. It was 29, maybe it was even after that, they announced a partnership. No, I think it was last year, 2022, they announced a partnership with Thought Machine to do a cloud-based core banking system for one of their new new products. I'm not even sure which one it's powering. So it took a really, really long time for a large bank to actually move one of their cores into the cloud, you know, call it 15 plus years. And so banks do not have a good track record of adopting technology. Maybe it'll be slightly different for AI, but probably not. And that's why I'm generally bullish on AI as a trend that just makes every startup more interesting to invest in because it's a new tool to build more software that does more things and costs less money to do so than ever before. And startups' biggest advantage against incumbents is execution speed. And they just got a new tool to allow them to execute even more quickly with less capital. And so that should just be a very good thing for startups generally, as well as for fintech companies specifically. I think why fintech specifically? Well, in fintech, as we talked about, the big banks have a lot of operational workflows. That's true for fintech startups as well. If you, from day one, are an AI native company and you use those that tooling appropriately, you can potentially automate a lot of those workflows and create a much better product that you know completely redefines how people think about what they're doing. Um, and it also relates a little bit to vertical SaaS. If you think about vertical SaaS, the platforms that do a whole bunch of work for a particular kind of business. So... Uh- so how, how do you think generative AI will impact financial services? So you already spoke about the cost efficiency in running operations. Besides that, what else? Uh, and also, uh, I read a blog post on Andreessen Horowitz, which kind of argues that, you know, uh, unlike the other tech like cloud and mobile and internet, adoption for generative AI will be faster, uh, especially among the incumbents. Uh, do you agree? And why so if? So I think it's not necessarily an either or. It can be a both and. So if you look at Will they be able to adopt this better than, you know, say, moving like a core banking platform into the cloud, which is incredibly hard to do? I think that, yes, the big banks will be able to actually improve some of their internal processes better. And the reason why is because I've actually seen them do it with worse technology. So I've talked to regional banks who are using RPA, robotic process automation. These are kind of old, more manual screen scrapey tools that help you move data from like one system to another by like tracking what an analyst is doing between systems. And those have d- delivered material ROI, but they usually take like an army of Accenture consultants to like go and build out and they're brittle and they break and they fall apart. 
with new generative AI tools, you should be able to build like RPA on steroids that no longer takes an army of consultants to build, but maybe like just a smart internal person can help build that sort of stuff. And now it does more, it's more reliable, it's easier to deploy, it takes over more workflows. If you start doing that, you can fundamentally change the cross structure of a bank because you're going to take away a lot of the operating expenses that go to salaries for these you know, heavy workflows. So that I think is reasonable because they've kind of already been doing this with you know, RPA to some extent, although RPA is by no means perfect. And this is like a RPA on steroids. But so will they be able to adopt? Yes. But I think what's going to happen when you have a platform shift is the types of businesses you end up building just become different and how the game of distributing financial services is, is going to be different. So for example, it very well could be that banks become 10 times more productive at doing small business lending, right? They like operate all the things they can do like fully automated underwriting, all this other sort of stuff. But it doesn't matter because small businesses they used to lend to now each one of them has their own vertical SaaS platform that actually just offers them loans in context at good enough rates that the bank's cost of capital advantage doesn't matter. Also, there's another argument that maybe bank's cost of capital advantage is going to go away soon because of some of the things that have happened around SBB and the move towards narrow banking. So like that might go away. And so they might become 10x more efficient, but it might be so much more seamless for people to access credit through these vertical SaaS platforms that it doesn't matter they're more efficient because they, they're losing distribution to the growth of vertical SaaS. And like, you know, this will take like 10 years to actually play out. But I think it makes way more sense to financial services to be embedded in the daily course of your life, as opposed to having to interrupt your life, leave that context, go to a bank and then ask them for a loan. And even if you're 10x more efficient at originating the credit, like the vertical SaaS platform is one who's aggregated demand. And so they could build out a marketplace of banks on the back end, <laughs> who all then have to bid against each other for the right to offer credit for the small business on this vertical SaaS platform, right? And so that it's not that banks won't be able to use and adopt it. It's that AI might change the way in which the whole marketplace operates. And so sure, they can adopt it. But now distribution is fundamentally different. And so that's kind of the thing I'll be very interested to see is the extent to which how people like if embedded financial services really becomes the default for how a lot of businesses start interacting. And it's very early, but that seems to me like the way things should be. Yeah. Uh, this was fun, Rex. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for having me all. Hopefully your audience enjoyed, enjoyed some stories and learned some things.